Welcome to the Smoke Pit. Joining us today, we have Andy Cunningham. She runs the Cunningham Collective, which um, is a fantastic consulting organization. You've probably heard of them. She's also the author of Get to Aha, which is a very popular and successful book about positioning in business. And also joining us today, we have a boss hider. You might remember him from a previous episode, Travel Like a Boss. How is everyone doing today? <laughs> great. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm, I'm doing good. I haven't traveled much, um, but, you know, hoping in the next month or two, I'll, I'll go somewhere. <laughs> well, um, so Andy has taken us to great heights in our uh, imagination and our creativity and helping us to expand uh, our perception of what it means to really utilize positioning um, and business. And so in your own wor uh, words, could you please tell us a little bit about what that means to you? So positioning is like the epicenter of everything in business. And I like to say it's the epicenter of great marketing and great marketing is the epicenter of great business. So if you want to have a successful business, you have to start with understanding what your position in the market is. And it needs to be compelling and it needs to be unique and it needs to drive sales. So, well, ultimately, that is, yeah, <laughs> I'm for very sure. passionate about this topic. <laughs> Well, you have worked with uh, some uh, some very passionate people and some very uh, successful uh, companies. Uh, so if I understand this correctly, uh, you, you worked with uh, Steve Jobs building Macintosh. I, I did. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with Steve back in the early 80s. Yes, that was another century ago. Um, but uh, it was a great experience. And uh, I didn't actually work at Apple. I worked at an agency called Regis McKenna. And Regis McKenna had a very special relationship with Apple and with Steve Jobs. And I got to be the person to lead the, the launch of the Macintosh uh, effort that we were. And was Regis on. also hired for Next and Pixar as well? Or was that? No, weird? that was just me. Unfortunately, no. So I left Regis after Steve got fired from Apple. I left Regis and formed my own company thinking I would never see Steve Jobs again. Solidarity. And, uh, literally, literally two weeks later, I got a call from Steve asking me to come and help him. And I can tell you some stories about that. But I but basically, we just couldn't work with Steve. He left Apple because it, it uh, created a conflict of interest with his business, which was with Apple. Now, so Steve needed to work with somebody outside. That's that's pretty cool that a you got a call from Steve Jobs uh, personally. <laughs> Second is. I wanted, uh, we've always heard, you know, that, yes, you know, he was a genius, but he was also kind of difficult to work with, um, you know, things that we've heard and watched in documentaries. How was your experience working with him? Yeah, he was, he was extremely difficult. He was the most difficult person that I've ever worked with or that I've ever even heard of, <laughs> but, he, <laughs> but he was difficult in ways that were, uh, pure, if you, if, if you understand what that means. So his agenda was really to, to change the world with that computer. That is all he cared about. So he didn't care if you were old or young or a man or a woman or a Martian. He, it, none of that mattered to him. It, what mattered is could you, could your skills add value to the project that he had to change the world with that computer? If the answer is yes, then you got to be on the team. If the answer is no, then you, got, you were eliminated from the team. And there were times when he would get rid of people throughout the course and then bring them back, which happened to me several times after he left Apple. Like several times. Like, yeah, like five times. I think he five times. Me, but, <laughs> I, 
I kept getting was, I kept getting the opportunity to come back, and I and I said yes. I was young then, you know. Was that in Next? Because I know he was pretty frustrated with Next, uh, with yeah, the yeah. cost and it just not picking up. Um, yeah, it was all it was all about Next. Yes, absolutely. And and uh, you know he wanted it. Let's face it, Next was a failure, right? The company was a failure, and so. When, when your company's failing and you're the founder of it, you know, everything's a problem, right? And so you're tr- constantly trying to find the way to, to fix it. And so if he didn't like something that I did, I became the problem of that week, right? And so so get rid of Andy. And then a week later, he realized, Bring okay, maybe Andy. that wasn't the problem. Let's call Andy back. And I always came back every time he called, except for the last time. He called me the last time that he fired me. And again, it was about three weeks later or something like that. And uh I, at this point, I had a relatively large agency. I don't know, probably 150 people at least. I had payroll to make. I had all these things I had to do. And I, I had taken on a competitor to Next at that time, right before he called me back. It was a company called, um, oh, God, it was a joint venture between Apple and IBM. And I can't remember. Taligent. It was called Taligent. It, it no longer exists. But they were. he didn't like Apple and he didn't like IBM. So the fact that it was a joint venture was a problem for him. And it, it was developing technology that could have be, could be seen as being competitive with the next machine. So uh, I told, I said, I'm really sorry, Steve, but I've got payroll to make. And I, I took on Taligent as a, as a client mm-hmm. and that was it. He didn't talk to me again for 10 years. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, now you worked with Guy Kawasaki as well when you were with Mike. How is, how is he? I've read his book, Enchantment. Oh. Uh, love that book. How was working with Guy Kawasaki? I love Guy. Guy, talk about passion. Guy is a an extremely passionate person about entrepreneurialism and about evangelism, which is really kind of a profession that he invented at Apple, and it has gone, you know, viral. It now lots of companies have evangelists, and he yeah. developed the whole program, invented the whole idea. And Guy is probably the world's best salesman. I think he could sell anything to anyone, and that's kind of what he tapped into in order to create oh. that role. So he's great. Amazing. So when you were working with Steve Jobs, uh, did you ever witness him have that aha moment when lightning struck and he came to that that epiphany, uh, which is kind of a reference to the book that so I was wondering if 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 you ever witnessed something like that, whether it was with him or with someone that you're working with that kind of really turned into something special? Yeah, I mean, there have been there were lots of lots of ahas along the way with many different things. And I'll, I'll just explain one that happened in the Macintosh arena. Um, which was, you know, everybody's heard of vertical marketing and horizontal marketing. Well, we as a team, mostly it was Mike Murray who came up with this idea that what we were going to do at Apple is we were going to do diagonal marketing, <laughs> which was an aha, right? It was, it was like, no, we're going to build a product that is both designed for businesses, but also designed for individuals. And that was really the first time that I'd ever run into this idea that B2B and B2C could be merged into something that I have since started to call B2P, business to people, because you're actually selling to a human being at the end of the day anyway. So that was one aha that we that we came to. But Steve was pretty solid about what he wanted to do with that computer. And he and he did, you know, he did it. But I, I, I should point out that Macintosh was not a success for 10 years. It took 10 years, eight of which those years Steve wasn't at Apple. So they fired him over the Macintosh because it wasn't succeeding. And I thought they might kill it, but they they ended up not killing it while he was gone. And it really foundered in the market until he came back and figured out the, the strategy. And this was another aha. He figured out that the people who were attracted to Macintosh were the creative types, right? And when he came back, he decided to lean into that and leverage that tribe, if you will, of creative types 
and start speaking to them and start expanding that tribe, which is exactly what he did with that brilliant ad campaign. Here's to the crazy ones. If you remember that one. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was the moment he realized, oh, there's a tribe of people who love this thing. I should I should be leveraging them and maximizing that and building that, not trying to take IBM out of the out of the picture and mm-hmm. replace IBMs with Macintoshes, which was was his original idea. So do you think that was an example of him using creativity to uh, enhance his positioning? Well, I think I think that he observed. I think one of the things that when you're young, and he was very young when he was running Apple, or he actually wasn't even running Apple, as you might remember. Um, he had John Scully was the CEO during the Macintosh era. And I think what he he wanted something so very badly, right? He he had an enemy because that's one of the one of the you know mantras of great marketing, have an enemy, right? So you can position yourself against an enemy. And the enemy he chose was IBM. And IBM was a pretty fierce and giant enemy that had, you know, millions of customers all over the world. And there was no way he was going to dislodge IBM from the market. Um, but that was kind of the David and Goliath story that he was trying to tell. So it wasn't until he matured a little bit through the next experience uh, and getting older that he realized um, maybe there's another way to succeed here. You know, and that's when he became very observant and watched who was attracted to the Macintosh and how, how they were using the computer and that's when he decided, I'm going to lean into that and make that my strategy. And that was really smart. But so, he didn't do that early on. Andy, in your book, you talk about the difference between branding and positioning. And a lot of people confuse the two, right? Um, yeah. What? How do you define branding versus positioning? Is one more creative than the other? So is branding the creative side? Is like How do you define the two? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question because I think the word brand and branding is probably the most misused word in the whole entire English language, or at least in the marketing lexicon. Um, so to me, they're they're equally important. One is a yin and one is a yang, and together they make the the they make up what I call a business identity. Right, your business identity is made up of your position, which is a very rational description of who you are and why you matter and your strategy. And branding to me is the emotional expression of that strategy. So from a creative perspective, the the branding side is far more creative, right? Because you need people to come up with images and tone of voice and personality and, you know, those things we all consider to be the fun part of, of building a brand. And then, the, but the positioning part is just the facts about who you are and why you matter and, and how are you different from everyone else and why should anyone care about you? And that's not very creative. It actually takes a lot of research and a lot of discipline and a lot of rigor to come to the answer to those questions. I mean, think about yourself as a human. How many people could actually answer the question in a minute, who are you and why do you matter? It takes a lot right. of work to go through that and it's tough. And most companies just don't do it, right? They start immediately with the emotional stuff because that's much more fun. It's much more creative. And that's what branding agencies do, right? They come in and they'll redo your logo and they'll create a campaign for you and they'll create a tagline and do all these creative things. And mostly they, they give short shrift to the, the rational side of your identity, which is so important. And the other thing I'll say about that is it needs to be done first. Just like humans, companies are a lot like people because they're made up, up of people and they serve people. So when you're, when you're in the process of trying to figure out your business identity, you should start with the rational side and then layer the emotional side on top of it so that it aligns with the rational side, as opposed to what you know, people want to do, which is let's just go, let's just jump right to the creative fun stuff. Just like humans, you know, you, you always want to think before you leap, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't always yeah. do that, but that's what you should be doing. 
For sure. And uh, in your books, you've talked about uh, how important it is for companies to figure out their DNA. Would you say that positioning and branding are the uh, the adjacent side of, of that helix? And if so, what connects the two? So the, the notion of your DNA, this was actually a thing that I discovered uh, on my own and no other firm that I know of uh, thinks of it this way. But I I was asked by a client once, why, what is it, what is the process you go through to help me figure out my position in the market? And, uh, and I couldn't answer that question because really the answer to the question is what every other branding person would say, would have said back 15 years ago when I did this, they would have said, you know, I lock myself in a dark room after reading all this research and talking to some of your customers, I light a candle, I sing Kumbaya, and I come out with this incredible ta-da here's a great tagline for you or ta-da, here's a great logo for you, or here's your color palette or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, I believe and I that's how they wrote the thing. script for Ghostbusters. <laughs> and sometimes it works. There's no question yeah. about that. Sometimes it really works. But I, I, I was forced to kind of think through what is my process. And I started by creating, doing a manual cluster analysis of all the companies that I had worked with in my past. So I took a sticky notepad and I wrote down every company that I had worked with or knew a lot about at that point in my career, which was, it was probably 20 years ago that I did this. So there were, I don't know, two or 300 companies in this, in this pile of sticky notes. And I began to sort of just manually create a cluster analysis. What do these companies have in common? And I pushed them over here. What are these? What are these? And I wound up with these three piles, right? There were companies that had super high customer focus in, in common. Then there was another pile that had super high product focus in common very engineering driven. And then there was this smaller pile that were people like Steve Jobs trying to change the world, trying to change our behavior on a fundamental level. Yeah. So I, I, so I gave them labels. I call them mothers, mechanics, and missionaries. And what I've, what I've learned over the course of, of applying that is that knowing who you are at your core, at your core DNA helps you leverage that DNA for your advantage in the market. So I like to say, know what you're made of so you can make something of it. And just to, say again how companies are like people you know if you have a i don't know if you guys have children or not but if you have a kid and the kid shows this amazing talent let's say to play the piano um, it's probably not smart of you as a parent to force that kid to stop playing the piano and start playing tennis instead because you happen to like tennis better than the piano right the, if the if the kid's dna is designed for the piano or designed for basketball as steph curry is or designed for you know, um, marketing, cop, writing copy, that's where that's, that should be leveraged to that kid's advantage. And the same is true with the company. If your DNA is all about being super, super highly customer focused, then leverage that DNA to your advantage. So that's really what that DNA but thing is all about. Can you be more than one? Can you be a mother and a mechanic or can you be mother and a missionary? No, you really, you really can't. And it's, it's, but it's just like DNA in that, in that it's your facing personality that is one thing. It's supported by little bits and pieces of the others, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the facing personality is, is, is different. And the reason that I know this, because in my little cluster analysis, I, I went through what are the different, what are the commonalities of mother companies, right? Well, for example, mother companies care a lot more about customer relationships than they do about market share. These kinds of companies hire highly, highly uh, customer success oriented people. They talk about customer success in meetings. They have, they, they just do things very, very differently from product oriented companies. They even structure themselves differently. So there, there are actual differences, physical hardcore differences between the way these companies operate. And if you happen to be a mother focused company, but you're operating like a mechanic company, you're, you're going to run into misalignment and you're going to run into 
the problem of not leveraging what you're really good at. So well, wouldn't you say Apple was a mechanic and missionary because they were very no. product focused too, were they Apple, not? Apple was, Apple was totally a missionary company. Product, they stole every one of those product pieces from other companies. None of that stuff was originally <laughs> developed at Apple, none of it. Um, and so Steve was just really good at, if you're gonna change human behavior on a fundamental level, which he wanted to do with that computer, you had to you had to get the best of the best, right? So mo a lot of this stuff he took from Xerox Park. I mean, this is kind of common knowledge, but um, he did not invent any of that stuff. In fact, over the course of his career, I think the only real thing he actually really invented from the ground up was the the music system that that he came yeah. up with with Apple Music. Would you say space um, is kind of the same way because he's taking off the shelf technology that's already available and just commercializing, or would you say? Are they mechanic or are they missionary? Because that did you say SpaceX? Did you say you said SpaceX? SpaceX? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think exactly. I think they're they're missionary. Well, I think Elon Musk is a huge missionary, right? And and one of the great things that Elon Musk gives the world um, is hope, right? And and that there's nothing better for a missionary to deliver to an audience uh, than 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 hope. So I think he's a missionary. But I wanted to say one more thing about Apple as a missionary. So under Steve Jobs, Apple was definitely a missionary company. In fact, they did everything around that idea of changing human behavior. They did not They did not behave like a mother company or even a product company at all. Um, but what happened is when Steve died, um, he left the company, of course, in the hands of Tim Cook, who, by the way, in my opinion, is probably the world's best, most amazing steward of the assets that he was left. Um, no question about it. He's created intense value for that company. But he tried very hard in the early years of his leadership there to replace Steve with someone else. Johnny I was one of the people he tried to replace Steve with, and he had a kind of a few others that were in line for that because he wanted to keep that missionary thing going, right? That next big thing idea. Um, but unfortunately, none of those things worked, right? The muse was gone. Steve was the muse and he was gone. And so the company dr has drifted over now into a product-oriented company. So now what you see- I to say, yeah. does that affect the leadership? Can that change? Even though your DNA is missionary because the leadership changed, can it that- changed. Yes. They, so they drifted. They drifted over there, right? It, it wasn't an intense, uh, an intentional move on the part of the leadership to, to become a product-oriented company because he, he tried to stay over there in the missionary very, very hard, but it, it just wasn't working. And so they've drifted over. Now they've embraced it and, and they're, they're a product company. And I think everybody, everybody knows that. Um, is I'll just say better one, than the oh, other is, is missionary better than mechanic or, or does it? No, not? it doesn't. It, it, each one of these companies can be amazingly successful. Like Oracle is an amazingly successful mechanic company. Microsoft is also a mechanic company, amazingly successful. Right. Uh, and as on the mother side of the equation, you know, we've got, uh, Adobe is an amazingly successful company, and they're a mother company. They focus on uh, on the marketing the marketing arena. So you can be successful in any one of these things. It's just, and part of the reason they are successful is they use their DNA to their advantage. Um, and I, I did want to say something about this shift because, yes, companies can shift from one to another. Sometimes it happens to them, like it did with Apple, where they drifted over to the product side after Steve died. But in the case of Amazon, Amazon actually started off. Uh, as a mechanic company, product company, if you remember over 30 years ago when they launched, they said, we're an online bookseller, right? Very, very specific to a, to a product. Uh, they were trying to be very simple about it. They had online bookselling. They captured that great line and, and, and did a great job with it. But then as time kind of marched forward, you saw 
Amazon bite off more, more and more pieces of, of the world, right, to, 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 to tackle. And sometime around, I'm going to say 15 years ago or so, I don't know the exact time, Bezos made the decision that he wanted to wanted the company to be Earth's most customer-centric company. And, uh, and he made that the new mission statement. We want to be Earth's most customer-centric company. And, that makes and he them started, the and what was that? That makes them the mother, right? That's right. So they're, they're moving, trying to move to be a mother. And, and here's the thing, though. He did probably a million things, million tactical things to make that, to actually steer that shift from mechanic to mother. And it started with the acquisition of Zappos. So he made the decision to buy Zappos. And believe me, it wasn't because Jeff Bezos couldn't figure out how to sell shoes online at that point, right? He knew how to sell shoes online. He bought Zappos because Tony Shea had developed a culture there that was so amazingly customer-centric uh, that he wanted that culture to, to, infuse, to be infused wow. inside of Amazon. That's also around the time when he decided that every meeting was going to have an empty chair. And what did that chair represent? The customer. I want everybody to always remember the customer all the time. Uh, he announced the mission statement. We're going to be Earth's most customer-centric company. So it, it just kept going and going and going. And tactic after tactic after tactic was designed to be this mother-oriented company. So that's an example of a company that purposefully steered itself to another direction. And Apple is an example of a company that drifted over there. So, But both of them are now leveraging what they, what they do well at this stage. And do you think... Um... That should be a conversation that you occasionally have with your customers. If we're talking about leaving an empty chair because it, the importance of being forward thinking enough, how often do you think that you should talk to your uh, customers about uh, about uh, things that matter in your company like that? I, yeah, I think uh, I think that if you're a mother company, you you got to be talking to your customers all the time. And if you think about Procter and Gamble or Clorox or some of these consumer packaged goods companies. They, they grow up with the idea that they, they actually go into the homes of, of people to watch how they wash their dishes, how they clean their clothes. I mean, they, they are so intimately knowledgeable about their customers that it, it, it puts technology companies to shame because we don't, we don't look at our customers like that. Um, so if you're a mother company, you got, you've got to have this super close relationship with your customers. If you're a product company, it's not quite as important because you're really just trying to develop the next thing in product, right? And so the companies that you acquire, they just become features on your platform and you're just constantly absorbing these features into the, into the, the product list. If you talk to an Oracle customer, you, you'll know that the, the customers that are, that are customers of Oracle know that Oracle doesn't spend any time with their customers. It's just not what yeah. they do, All right? So, and then the next big thing companies like Apple and Tesla and remember Starbucks, you know, Starbucks changed the way we thought about coffee, FedEx changed the way we thought about package delivery. These companies behave very differently and they, they, uh, they're trying to change our behavior. And so they, they do it in a whole different way, right? They focus on what's the next big thing. You work sure. with um, Larry Ellison at all? I worked with Oracle. I never actually worked directly with Larry. I wish that I had, but I, I never had. But I worked with Larry's direct reports several so times. Was, so there was a time when Larry left the company and then came back, I think, when the former CEO, uh, I think, passed away. Does that, does that change again? Did the DNA change again? Or no, you know what? I don't think the same? I, I, I don't think that that Oracle's DNA ever changed, and I don't think that Larry Ellison ever left the company. <laughs> he may not have been he may not have been the CEO, but he was absolutely always the figurehead, regardless. So his DNA 
remained the the driving force of that company even when he wasn't there even still today uh, you know i was uh dan wanted to ask uh if you have something go ahead I, I i have another tangent that i'd like to get into but if you'd like <laughs> to tie the knot on this one yeah no i wanted to ask um i remember um in college and high school we had you know everyone all the cool people had blackberry phones right oh yeah <laughs> and then it changed and I saw that you also worked with BlackBerry. So where's BlackBerry going? What are they doing? <laughs> oh, that's a, that is such a great question. Um, I know John Chen will appreciate me saying this because BlackBerry, so John Chen is the current CEO and he was brought in to turn around the company after it became apparent to the board that it was a dying smartphone company. And we can get into why it died. I, I know why it died, but we'll get into that in a minute. But when John Chen came in, he had to come up with a strategy for turning around this company okay and that is a bit huge challenge with a company the size of blackberry and he came up with this idea that that what it really should be is a software company um and so i then came in and worked with with john chen to help him figure out this this pivoting strategy if you will and really what happened was we went through an exercise of looking at the assets that the company had that were worth saving for the future and there really were only a couple of them. One of them was mobility, because BlackBerry was very good with mobility from a technology perspective. And the other one was security. BlackBerry was, was and still is known as one of the highest end security companies. So the, the notion of becoming a, an enterprise security software company is what emerged as the, as the strategy that we were going to pursue. And that is, that is what, what we did. And there, the company is, is, is making that transition. It's not an overnight thing, right? It's John Chen re-upped his, his, um, his contract as the CEO. And so he's uh, committed to, to taking that company to become a, you know, a world-renowned enterprise software security company, which I think it can do. But as you can imagine, he had to change everything, revenue recognition models, product development, sales, marketing, everything had to change in that company to move from being a essentially a consumer product that was also sold to businesses like this to being an enterprise software security company. So, so why did it fail? So BlackBerry failed because uh, at the time, BlackBerry was leaning into the whole notion of security because it was so good at it, right? And we all know all the FBI agents had Blackberries, all the very you know secretive and very wealthy CEOs all had Blackberries. In fact, a lot of people had a Blackberry and an iPhone together and they would carry them around together because this the Blackberry was their security thing. And the, the way that BlackBerry was able to maintain such a high security uh, position in the market is that it had very few apps. Because the more apps that you have, the less secure you are. Mm -hmm. Apple made the choice to embrace apps and become the platform for apps, right? And the market made its decision, and the decision was we we will we want apps over security. So that's what happened. They all moved to the Android and the Apple model because of the, because of the apps, and they Nokia moved away from BlackBerry. Too Nokia, there's like they had such a massive market share, and how do you get that big, and then lose it? Isn't that, that it's so frustrating, like, is isn't it? Them getting away from their DNA or not staying in touch with their yeah. customers. Like, yeah. How do you well, get, because some people say you're too big to fail, right? You, you have that, oh, well, Amazon's too big to fail. But we've seen companies that are massive and not that they've failed, but they've, they're no longer the market leader in that segment. Right. And that's what happened to BlackBerry. So the, the Black, BlackBerry had actually a good reason to fail, right? It, it chose the wrong strategy. It chose a strategy that the market didn't want. In the case of Nokia, I don't actually know why Nokia failed, but I, I will say that disruption plays a huge role in the failure of, of uh, incumbents, 
you know, and disruption, which is a concept that Clay Christensen came out with in his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, a number of years ago, which is really, you know, a lot of times a, a new technology that enables people to do something better, faster, cheaper, not just a little bit better, faster, cheaper, but an order of magnitude better, faster, cheaper, uh, is what creates a disruption. And my my guess is that Nokia got disrupted by by some of these other players, Apple being one and Android being the other. So, you know, it's a it's a technology that does things better, faster, cheaper, and people choose it over the incumbent. Is Facebook a mother company, a missionary okay. or a mechanic? Because now, again, my question earlier that can you be more than one? Because they are coming out with actual tangible products like or Oculus, right? Right. So are I they have my headset right here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. So no, Fantastic Facebook, product. Is, Facebook is through and through a mechanic. There's no question about it. And I worked with them. Uh, so I got to be on the inside of that company to see exactly how much of a mechanic they really are. They care only about their product and, 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 you know, proliferating their product for sure, but they are not a customer focused company at, at all. So the things that you talk about in your book, get to aha and i i've given that book to a lot of the people that work at Aspetto as well just because it's so informative and you gain so much from it thank you <laughs> uh, my question was do you think that your business has to be a certain size to implement those things or could it be a mom and pop shop in downtown fredericksburg virginia or even a franchise right like could, or like or does it only work for companies that have global presence no i think it, i think it applies to companies of any and all sizes the better position you are in a market whether you're a you know a, a convenience store down the street or whether you are a multi-billion dollar you know software company for enterprises um it's you'll you'll do better if you're well positioned so if that convenience store so i live in a town here uh, in Sausalito, California, where there are two, there are two convenience stores. <laughs> one of them is a Seven Eleven, and the other one is a is kind of this mom and pop sort of very friendly place where you can buy kind of all kinds of cool things. And so their place in the market is that they're the friendly the friendly convenience store, right? And they're the the Seven Eleven is the you know just drop in and buy a carton of milk and get get the heck out of there. There's yeah, no personality. Friendly. Yeah. So, so I think no matter what you are, you you if you position yourself well and build a build a little brand around it, um, you're going to do better. And if and building that brand around who you actually are is kind of the important the important message that I like to leave people. It's like if you, whoever you are at your core, that's what you should elevate to build your brand out of. Whether you're a human being trying to build a personal brand or whether you're a company trying to build a you know a big enterprise brand. Are there companies? in the market that you see that have done well um they're bigger but you're like man they do not know their positioning because oh, so have many to companies. Know positioning in order for you to do well because again i think finding your dna figuring out your position in the market is one of the hardest things very um, hard very i hard. know that even after being in business for 13 14 years Sometimes we still struggle with this. In fact, that's how I came across you <laughs> um, because yeah. we were struggling with that. So the question is that there are companies, Aspetto is a profitable company, that companies can still be profitable and not know their yeah. positioning, but is that sustainable? And are there companies that 
you see that you're like, man, they're doing billions of dollars, but they have no idea what their DNA is. So two yes. questions. Yeah. So I think you can, you can totally be successful or profitable uh, without knowing those things, right? Especially if you happen to have like a really, Facebook is a great example of this, right? The, Facebook was essentially equivalent to selling sugar to children, right? It was so sticky as a product that you couldn't not use it or buy it. You, you almost couldn't not do it, right? So they didn't need to know any of these other things, right? They just, they stumbled upon or strategized to, or however they came up with this idea, um, this in this product that was so sticky, it was like selling sugar to kids. Now they've got a much more complicated situation and, and things are, are more difficult. Um, but obviously they were successful before figuring all these things out. And so I think if you if you figure these things out, though, you you have a, a, a more accelerated path to greater success. And so figuring it out is is good for you. Right. It's just like, can you be, you know, relatively fit? without working out for two hours every day. Yeah, you could be relatively fit, but you're gonna be a lot fitter if you work out two hours a day. <laughs> you know, you're better, you're gonna be better for it if you if you do this this work. So it's about getting better. Mm -hmm. Well, fantastic. I um I want to get into that uh, that side tangent that I had, uh, if that's- <laughs> Oh yes, your tangent, no, bring it on. No, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna cut anyone off. There's just uh, so much good information uh, that you know, this, this could literally be its own Ted talk, but, uh, so you quickly mentioned the, uh, the, the Oculus and, and not to, to give away too much uh, free publicity, but I really enjoy using, uh, virtual reality. And there oh, cool. is one feature in there that, uh, they have a documentary, uh, about Fallujah. And so a lot of veterans like myself who went through the city of Fallujah were very curious to see what was going on now, what's life is like now. And so wow. to be able to use this, um, this documentary to go through the city and to feel like you're, you're, you're back on uh, certain roads that you haven't been in a while that you never thought that you'd go back to is, uh, an extremely valuable asset. And so when we consider, um, the, the way that a lot of advertising and positioning and branding kind of affects the, the veteran audience, um, you know, we, we also have to acknowledge the fact that when you have uh, somebody who is an entrepreneur starting out from the military, most of the time they're not going to be extremely well-funded. They're probably doing it on their spare time during their nine to five. And right. there, there might be that kind of panic moment where they think that something's not going right. And if you're not a huge successful company like BlackBerry that, you know, does have revenue coming in, you might panic and you might do things uh, in, a, in a sense of self preservation. So we've, we've talked uh, extensively about how positioning and how um, acknowledging your DNA can affect these larger companies. What advice would you have for perhaps a small veteran-owned business that really quite hasn't established enough revenue to be able to have the flexibility to try new things out? What, what advice would you have for them as far as when you get to that, that panic moment where you're like, oh man, I don't think that I'm going to succeed? Right. And how, we, we are, you need and, and how long does it take to, in a way, see results? Right. Like as soon as you implement it, are you going to give yourself three months? Because as Dan said, if you're in a panic mode, uh, is this a life saving thing or, you know? Yeah, that's a, Yeah, that's a really great question. I, I first I want to though, I want to thank all of you veterans for your service to the country. My father was a World War Two veteran and I I just really um, appreciate what you you have all done. So thank you for that. Um, 
so if you're if you're doing a business now, which is congratulations on that as well, because that's a pretty uh, big step to start a business. Uh, I, I work with a client right now who is a very small company. They're a startup. There's, there's only two of them in the company. And uh, and they uh, engaged with me to help them with this positioning thing. And the big question I got yesterday when I was in the room with them is, oh, my God, we, we woke up yesterday morning and realized we don't have any money to make any of this stuff happen <laughs> right now. <laughs> like, so what do we do? What do we do? I mean, my God, we've got these great ideas about how. And she hung up and he hung up the phone. <laughs> click block block yeah, block yes. yeah <laughs> yeah no no I, I i here's what i said and, and i would say this to the to the veterans who are starting their anybody starting a company that where you're in that panic mode and believe me i've been there myself it's it's a tough place to be but what you're really doing with this positioning exercise is you are really developing strategy it's all about strategy right and so when it comes to activating that strategy, you have choices to make about how much you want to do, how much you want to spend, um, or spend nothing at all. But now you have a strategy, right? You have an articulated strategy. So whether maybe the only thing you do is hire one person, but now you have a strategy to explain to them, this is what our company's doing. This is what we're looking for. This is how we're positioned in the market. So even if you don't have any money to actually make something come to, to fruition at the moment, what you're doing is changing the way you're going to make your future decisions by having this positioning strategy figured out. So it's totally valuable to you, even if you can't activate it for another year. So that's one answer. And the other thing you asked me about is, does it, how much, you know, it takes time to, for these things to happen, right? You can't just like snap your finger and, and all of a sudden your position has changed in the market. So what, what I can tell you is the fastest that I ever saw change happen was three months, um, which, which, I know if you're panicked in a, in a business situation, it seems like forever, but in the, in the you know, big world of marketing, three months is really nothing. And that was really with BlackBerry, with the BlackBerry turnaround. We were able to affect some change in three months, which, uh, which was great. And we did it through educating the analyst community about what the new BlackBerry strategy was. And we did it by uh, re, reorienting all of BlackBerry's followers. BlackBerry had millions of followers as a, as a smartphone company and led, all, led, by the way, by Kim Kardashian. We, BlackBerry paid Kim Kardashian to be the tribe leader of all the BlackBerry followers on social media. And we had to basically go to those millions of social media followers and yeah. say, no more Kim Kardashian. <laughs> and, no, and, and by the way, no more Blackberry. <laughs> like, like, uh, like everything is changing. We're, we're, we're turning, we're becoming an enterprise software company. We came up with this idea that we, at that time, the internet of things was a really big, a big common thing. And it turns out that Blackberry's technology actually enables people to secure every little piece in the internet of things. So the internet of things has all kinds of things in it, right? In it and on it. Uh, things like toasters are in the internet of things, little, little monitors, little semiconductors, all these things make up the internet of things. And we came up with this phrase, the enterprise of things, because that's what BlackBerry was securing. And that little phrase actually caught on really well with the analyst community and with um, the enterprise community, which we were then moving into. So we, we did start to see change in three months and it happened with that meme. I'll say that memes are really important in marketing, whether you're marketing B2B or B2C. If you can come up with some That's kind literally of how meme. I started this company. <laughs> oh, really? Really? What was I your was meme? just what super was depressed meme? on the couch and I uh, just made a lot of jokes about my experience in the military and eventually the following grew and people were like, hey, can we pay you to post this? 
And I was like, oh well, this God. isn't Kim Kardashian money, but I, I think I'm available. You know, that Kim Kardashian move was probably them waking up and panicking. They're like, who can we pay this? Probably. Well, she, uh, she did attend the Marine Corps Ball a few, few years ago, so it is a possibility that she listens to the show. So I, I don't want to alienate a uh, potential listener. You're right. No, <laughs> but no, absolutely she's not. She, she might be out there. Hi, Kim. We yeah. miss you at BlackBerry. <laughs> <laughs> and say you know one of these small businesses say they don't quite have kardashian sponsorship money uh is there is there any advice that you have that people may overlook in their day-to-day habits that would be beneficial uh for their positioning yes absolutely and this is this is very simple but very hard to do and it's the concept of consistency and frequency and so it's if you think about success in life, let's let's just talk about maybe losing weight as one one thing that people try to do, right? The only way you can be successful with losing weight is to be consistent and frequent with it, right? Same thing with physical fitness. The only way to, to get physically fit is consistency and frequency. The only way to learn how to, I play the trumpet. I used to play the trumpet in, in uh, college. The only way to be good at the trumpet is consistency and frequency. Everything is about consistency and frequency. So once you come to what your new position is, um, you and you have a meme to describe it, by the way, because that's a very important thing. Um, and you, you're just consistent and frequent with the use of that language, whether you're posting or whether you're on a phone with somebody or whether you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane or writing website copy or whatever it is you're doing. That little phrase that describes what your company does needs to be said over and over and over and over again. It used to be back in the 20s when this uh, there was a rule that was developed that we have adopted in the world of marketing. We call it the marketing rule of seven. And this was invented in the 20s when they were trying to market movies. And they did a bunch of research uh, in Hollywood to determine how many times does a person need to see a message about a movie before they will consider buying a ticket or buy a ticket. And it turned out back in the 20s, it was seven times. Okay, seven times they had to see a message before they would they would consider buying a ticket. So today we have like how many more channels do we have than we had in the 20s? Like we've got, you know, millions of channels now. So I call it the marketing rule of 7000 now. But you've got it. The point is you have to tell somebody something over and over and over and over again before it sticks in their brain. But that is the way to make something stick. It's it's all about consistency and frequency. (laughs) What are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen startups or companies make uh, when it comes to just positioning? Well, I think the biggest mistake is they they think it's branding. And so they they get a new logo, they get a new tagline, they create a color scheme, they even get a website developed. And then somebody has to write the copy for the website and the copywriter is like, okay, what do we say about who we are? And there's no answer. (laughs) So I think that's the that's the biggest mistake that people make is they they think that that creating a brand is around these what I'll call the softer side of marketing not the hard there's a hardcore side of marketing that has to happen first and, and it's it's hard you know it's it's i call it hardcore because it's hardcore important but it's also hard um to like you mentioned early on Abbas, about the idea of how hard it is to to work these issues out who are you like you know i used to work i do a lot of work with sun microsystems which doesn't exist anymore but um there was a very very flamboyant and um uh kind of famous ceo of the company at the time a guy named scott mcneely and I worked very closely with the guy who worked, who was his handler. Um, and the guy that I worked with used to take a, a piece of paper before Scott would get up in front of any audience. And my friend would sit in the front row. His name was Jeremy. He'd sit in the front row. And on the piece of paper was written, make me care, <laughs> make me care. And he'd hold it up so Scott could see it while he was talking. 
and that and that's that's the key to everything right when you're when you're you don't need any money to make someone care what you need is passion and you need a, a position and you need a way to talk about your position and it, it none of this costs money right it's all it's all it's all about your behavior just time yeah yes there is time there's no question <laughs> about that but yeah, everything and... good in life takes time right <laughs> oh for sure we uh we we have uh, heard in the past that you know time is a is a resource and so when we're looking at a small business do you uh do you have a, a rule that you go by of how much either time or percentage of budget should be dedicated oh. to various components yeah that's that's a great question um so I think that that B2B companies don't spend enough money on marketing. And as soon as the mar- as soon as sales droop a little bit, they, they immediately snip marketing off at the at the knees and it's it's gone. Um, and I think that's a huge mistake. So, you know, you need to have an R&D budget, you need to have a marketing budget, you need to have a sales budget, but I'm a big believer in in marketing. First invest in marketing before you invest in sales because marketing is is there to prepare the market for sales. So if you happen to be a startup invest company, invest in marketing first, you're saying, before Invest sales. in marketing first, yeah. right? Because marketing's job is to prepare the market for sales. So give them an opportunity to do that, to prepare the market. Then bring on the get sales those seven force. impressions. Yes, get those seven impressions and then bring on the sales guys who can, you know, who can take the leads that marketing should be giving them and turn them into closures, right? And turn, close those sales. So, so many marketing so, you know, companies that are, that, don't produce and that is very discouraging because as a business owner i've hired marketing companies and i would you know give them even pr firms where i would give them a pretty decent budget and then nothing comes out of it and then i'm just like you know what i'm done with marketing firms i can't do it anymore very Uh, frustrating and i would i would bet and of course i don't know this but i would bet that the reason that most of those marketing situations failed is because you didn't have the positioning the position because the positioning has to be this thing that that is that becomes so sticky that that people that it, it it there's product market fit there right there's such product market fit with your positioning statement that people want to learn about it they want to hear about it right so i feel like none of them asked who are you i mean other than my therapist and you no one else has asked <laughs> You know, who are you? Hey, <laughs> you and I had like a four-hour drive to the Poland-Ukraine border, and I asked. That's true. <laughs> who are you? Dan asked who you are. And, and you couldn't, you couldn't get who away are from you? <laughs> We were stuck in a car together going from, I think it was what, Zhezhiv to, Pol- yeah. uh, to the border of Ukraine. Zhezhiv, yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. And um, that, was, uh, that was an interesting I asked. Yes. Yes, he did. So yes, he did. What it almost sounds like. Out. <laughs> is with positioning you are seeking to place yourself uh in between the uh the the customer the consumer and whatever their goal is so kind of like they're persians their happiness is the rest of greeks and we're just the spartans there you know <laughs> yeah you know the the the, the size yeah. of five thousand with accompaniments you know, just if you want happiness you have to go through us <laughs> <laughs> so i like that idea yeah go through yeah. the marketing people um <laughs> You know, one of one of the great strategies, just to, to mention, if, especially if you have a small company and you're, you know, you're trying to compete in a big world, you know, find your tribe, right? Who is your tribe? Find your tribe, just like what Steve did with Macintosh, right? He went through a big failure with it, went through another failure with Next, and then he discovered the tribe. And the tribe for him was the creator types, right? So who's the tribe for your little company? And, and then land you know, and expand. 
for especially again this podcast is very much focused on the military veteran community for them it is almost i'm not saying it's easier but to define a tribe if your company is veteran focused or you know somehow connected to uh military dan you can tell me that i'm completely off but i feel like that tribe is almost kind of there because you have that that fraternity almost there right so it's a it's a bit of a dual-edged sword yes you have that immediate connection because there is the you know the sense of camaraderie and shared experience however comma pause for effect <laughs> veterans are notoriously hard to market to I, I you've you've met aj he is a grumpy old cactus self self-proclaimed he is self-proclaimed the hardest demographic to market to because wow. he is skeptical of all things yeah. so, with with that being said um are so, there sound like beard oil or something like <laughs> that you know that, those yeah, are you can only, only buy so much beard oil <laughs> but with uh with that being said are there any personality traits or um mindset uh, centric business principles that you see in veterans or you know people like your grandfather that you think are beneficial to them in business or are a detriment to them in business? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, doing a business is really hard. for So for all of the veterans who have started businesses, again, congratulations, because it's nothing but pain and hardship most of the time. Just most heartbreak of the time. and suffering. Uh, heartbreak and suffering. Just 2 a.m. burritos and heartburn. Exactly. Until you get that one success, right? Then you have one success and oh my God, you're just elite, you know, elated beyond belief to, to, to have achieved that success. So the traits in a human that is typically successful in business is just tenacity, right? It's like the ability to just keep going, even when the rest of things around you are, are look like hell, right? They, and, and veterans are very good at that, right? I mean, that's, I think that's, you know, that's one of the big traits of, of veterans is they understand how to keep going in the face of, of what appears to be incredible disaster. And that those are the people who typically succeed. Like, and Sounds again, like my dating life. Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I found success now, but it was choppy there for a minute. <laughs> yeah, it's always choppy, right? It's always choppy. Like you it's never give up, right? In the it's face about... of disaster after disaster. <laughs> there you go. See, you've been through it. You know how to do it. Now yeah. you know how to win. <laughs> if you see a shoe come flying in, inside, <laughs> that's Sam right there. <laughs> And so what kind of personality traits uh, do, do you see that are um, uh, obstacles and um, that people present as their own obstacles and getting in the way of their own success in business? Yes, that's a really great question. I, I What I think is that people who, who are not introspective, <laughs> so in other words, people who kind of sometimes these people can be arrogant people, sometimes they 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 don't they they're unaware of their surroundings they're you know they're it's they're narcissistic in many ways those kinds of people tend to not be very good at business because you have to take in all this data you know another thing i know that veterans are really good at is situational awareness right because they have to be dealing in situations you know that are very dangerous so you you need situational awareness and having situa situational awareness as you are going through the business journey is really critical because you got to be able to see that competitor that's coming at you from this side or you got to see the you know the customer that's unhappy over here from this side and you've got to head it off to the past before that becomes a, a true disaster for you so i think those types of people who don't ex exhibit those traits are, are you typically you know 
destined to fail in business. Well, thank you so much for, for that. And I know you have to get out of here soon, but I, I do have one question that I, I, I would be remiss if I, if I let you off the show without asking. You know, we, we sp- spoke a little bit about the virtual reality. And it, one of the neat things about there is that people, creative types, they can animate, they can create worlds and environments. And one of the most impactful uh, moments of my life was, you know, sitting in the movie theater, watching a Pixar movie and you yeah. know, that, 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 the, pull of the heartstring and you know for for that brief moment i i forgot about that firefight in alambar province for a brief moment i i forgot about you know the 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 heartache of looking at your bank account and realizing that it wasn't quite worth the effort right Um, (laughs) and so what what was it like to 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 work with a with, with a company that has been so impactful in so many people's lives in in pixar are you referring to yeah pixar yeah it it it, it really is was magical. I mean, I uh, I actually worked with Pixar I, before it was a storytelling company. So, you know, we all know it today as a storytelling company that pulls at your heartstrings. But actually, Pixar was originally a computer. It was a box about this big, and it was what we call in the graphics world a, a graphics rendering engine. It was designed mm-hmm. to make graphics happen really fast for the world, for other people, right? For for movie companies or other people on the outside. And it really wasn't until Steve got there that that he realized that this this demo guy in the back room named John Lasseter, who was an amazingly creative guy, was writing these little stories just to just to demo how well the computer could render graphics. And Steve is like looking at it and going, oh, my God, this is like this is it. This is the thing. Right. This is touching me as a human. Um, and that computer, there are lots of rendering engines, right? And this might be faster than others, but there are lots of those. There are very few John Lasseter's. <laughs> uh, so he was able to kind of pivot pivot the company. And that's one of the things Steve was so very good at was was um, really what touches you as a human being, right? He was ve- he he knew how to create an environment around people that would make them think certain things, right? He could change the furniture, change the things on tables, just to to manipulate how he thought about something. So touching a, a heartstring was something he was naturally very, very good at. And Pixar, of course, um, had the talent to do it. And Steve had the, the, uh, the foresight to, to make it actually happen there. So I wonder if he ever like staged the house in a certain way uh, before he got into an argument with his significant other, just oh, kind of like set yeah, the stage. Steve apparently was notorious know? about spending money on furniture. And yeah. that's, that was one of the big things a- that absolutely. I spent, like, like thousands upon thousands of dollars per chair. A- absolutely. I used to go, I used to do press tours with him in New York where we would go to, to his favorite hotel there, which happened to be the Carlisle hotel. And we would get in around 10 o'clock at night and we would spend three or four or five hours rearranging the furniture, moving, getting things out of the room, bringing in flowers and candy and fruit and things that he wanted to sit around the room completely changing the environment of what was already a gorgeous room at the Carlisle <laughs> Hotel and turning it into the environment that he thought would was best going to cause his the people that came in, which at that time were the journalists, to think a certain way about yeah. Steve, about Apple, about the product. He was brilliant at that. That's incredible. And in the yeah. military, we call that shaping the battlefield to your desire, where you, yes. know, you always have to ask yourself, if this is the hill that I'm going to die on, am I happy with this the way it looks? Do I need to improve sandbags? Do I need to change right. lines of fire? Do I need to move claymores? And so you know, the military has a little bit of that ingrained into them where you shape the battlefield to your desire. And uh, one last saved I final like round. 
do you have any projects coming up that you that you want to shout out that you're excited about that you'd like to get the word out there? Yes. Thank you can get you. that I first do. impression, very, that first tap very, right here. Very quickly. I'm actually launching an online curriculum that will also include some in-person seminars. I'm teaching people how to do positioning. So I'm calling it the C-School. And I would love to, uh, we're doing a, a beta test of the of the in-person session next week with um, 10 of, of uh, people who run small agencies. And then we're going to do another beta test in February of people who are internal marketers. And then we're going to launch this curriculum. So I'm very close to launching the C school. So I'd love, yeah. I'd love for your listeners to, uh, yeah, I'd love to let them know when it's ready to go. That'd be great. Oh, for sure. We, we'd be more than happy to have you back on uh, once it, it gets to that point. But I know you have to get out of here. You're very busy. Thank you so much, everybody. Andy Cunningham. Make sure you check out Get to Aha, uh, her fantastic book. Also, uh, a boss. Check out uh, aspetto.com. Also, make sure you check out popsmokemedia.com for news stories and updates. Thank you so much, both thank you, of you, for, oh, for, uh, thank for joining you guys. us today. It was a, it was a pleasure. Was and go- goodbye, everybody. Thanks goodbye. a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.